Hello, Ross. Hey, Ernie, let me turn down my volume. I had my music up loud, and so you're taking over the whole house. <laughs> <laughs> I have been accused of doing that before. <laughs> All right. You're now at a reasonable volume. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, that was the uh, last piece of advice I had from my psychiatrist was to speak uh, slowly, softly, and smile so that I would oh. be less intimidating and aggressive. Interesting. I just, just read an article, might have been yesterday, about uh, Russians in particular and Eastern Europeans specifically, or I mean generically, um, don't smile as much. And so they, they, they think that we're uh, amused by something or mocking them, in fact. And so if you're interacting with someone from those cultures, you want to smile less. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Where they think that, uh, and we think that they're dour and oh. negative and critical. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, to be honest, I really did feel that way. <laughs> yeah. No, it's an it's a interesting point. Yeah, my uh, my boss is, um, I think, uh, Slavic, uh, I think Serbian, um, uh -huh. or Croatian, sorry. And yeah. so, um, but he's very, he's a very cheerful fellow. I wonder if he's actually learned to um, smile more mm -hmm. in order to take the edge off of the cultural, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I have, funny thing. in fact, the article actually said the same thing that, it was written by an Eastern European. He said he's mm -hmm. done exactly that. So anyway, I was just curious. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like you think of a smile as a positive thing, mm -hmm. but then yeah, if it seems inappropriate, it can feel creepy or mm -hmm. manipulative or mm -hmm. mocking. Yeah, I think it's the, the old saw. There is no good or bad emotions. There, there is just sort of how they're perceived in context and yep. how you process them. Yeah. So speaking of emotions, it sounds mm. like uh, I was I was encouraged by your Potter's wheel metaphor mm. uh, in terms of what you've been going through, which is uh, quite a lot. <laughs> it, it definitely, and I can, you know, but I'm, I'm actually really encouraged that you managed to that you're able to frame it as a Potter's wheel formative experience rather than a unfair traumatic experience. Uh, there's a wonderful line in a Rick Joyner. A dream where he meets this child warrior in this vision and who's been like fighting since she was young and he says oh i feel so bad for you he goes don't she goes don't don't you dare do that the only mm. thing that can defeat me is self-pity oh wow yeah and i i thought about that a lot and it's like yeah, yeah. Me too. you know uh, it, it really does seem like because uh, self-pity is the opposite of joy mm. And that's been a word that I keep hearing is that you know, the joy of the Lord mm. is your strength. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I, I've come to believe that it's true in that um, I was telling, uh, I had a, we have our prayer time in our church on Sunday mornings. And one of the ladies uh, was sharing about, you know, kind of how uh, she was, you know, tempted to be frustrated and, angry about all the political chaos that was going on and how people are, are taking sides and mm. you know but she says that you know i feel like sometimes the only thing i can do is just take a step back and rejoice that god is in control and trust that he knows what he's doing and yep. i went up to her and said you know i'm starting to think that maybe that is not just the only thing we can do that is the most important thing we can do 
is rejoice in the midst of pain and injustice and frustration. Mm -hmm. uh, because it really seems like that creates change at both the psychological and supernatural level. Mm -hmm. And I... go ahead. And to your point, sometimes it makes people feel like we're mocking them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's also interesting too, um, as I, I think it's something that can't be rushed. Um, yes. It because this stuff sometimes that happens to us is really hard and it's tough and in the world's eyes well maybe anybody's eyes it's bad yeah you know it's yeah. evil um and so our our natural and instinctive reaction to it is not wrong <laughs> the yeah the miracle is that somehow god is able to move us into a different place and yeah. uh yeah i don't i don't really even know how it happened except that your remark sort of you know peeled the cover off the fact that it had <laughs> my comment about it being a crucible that you were yeah in. right yeah. yeah no it's yeah that, that's interesting so the um someone once talked about this is that faith is like a muscle um, or I guess probably even a better metaphor would be the cardiovascular system is that when your system gets stressed, like it's going to be out of equilibrium, right? Uh. The question is how long does it take you to get back to equilibrium? And the idea that we are building the capacity to absorb uh, trauma and unjust suffering and like any good physical trainer, what happens is there's certain things which actually um, don't even disturb you at all anymore because you've built the muscle to handle that. <laughs> and so then, of course, the trainer has to up the ante in order to actually get to the point of being worn out and stressed enough that you actually keep growing and getting stronger. And for me, that was uh, really the point where, you know, when I was going through uh, kind of a... I guess a spiritual crisis of sorts. I never doubted that God was real. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I never really doubted that God was good in some abstract sense. I just had grave doubts whether God's idea of good had anything to do with my own. <laughs> yes, I've been you know? there. <laughs> yeah, and for me, the, the inflection point was I was reading through uh, the Gospel of John and I got through uh, the, story, to the story of Lazarus. And in the mindset I was reading uh, it, Jesus comes across as a sadistic jerk. <laughs> oh yeah, Thomas is gonna die, so I'm not gonna go there because it'll teach you a better lesson. <laughs> right? And then Mary and Martha show up and Jesus give these weird cryptic statements. But my, I can't believe my brother died. He's going to rise again at the end day. It's like, come on, Jesus, what is wrong with you? Um, and it just feels like it, it felt like to me exactly the way my life feels like is that God could fix everything, but he chooses not to. And we ask him why we get these weird platitudes. It just <laughs> feels like it's just it's hurdle after hurdle, hoop after hoop. And it's just like never going to end. So like, what's the point? And then we get to the tomb 
and Jesus wept. Mm. And it suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks that, oh, he is not standing off to the side, putting us through things, um, you know, heedless of the cost to us. He actually feels our pain deeper than we do ourselves mm. and chooses and it, it, you know very much i see god relates to uh, the universe like a performance athlete relates to their body mm. is that they love it and they love it so much that they want it to be the best version of itself no matter how much it hurts mm. that's a <sighs> That's a very interesting uh, analogy, and I, I, in as insightful as it is, it's still mm-hmm. really a small part of the picture. <laughs> mm. um, because a, uh, you know, a performance athlete, you know, an elite Olympian or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, the more I think about it, the deeper that goes. <laughs> I was going to say that, um, you know, our, even our love for our bodies, I don't think can even come near to God's concern and care for us. But it is interesting that we're the body of Christ. And so I, I yeah. think, yeah, you know, so it's, you're kind of right, actually. That is a very. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, and even think about all creation groans waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Mm. Is I actually think that, I mean, I have a, I don't, I don't know if you've studied the theological terms. People talk about uh, something called panentheism or uh, pantheism and deism and all these different uh, phrases people use to describe how God relates to the universe. Is God apart from the universe? Is God part of the universe? Mm-hmm. Is God the same as the universe? Yeah. And uh, the terms all get very confusing, but uh, uh, I, my favorite phrase that I just made up is, is a while ago was is panko-theism. What was so that? We're all just like panko-theism, as in panko, the panko breadcrumbs. Yeah. We're okay. all just little breadcrumbs. It's sort of like atomized pieces of God stuff spread uh. throughout the universe. And the idea that God coexists with the universe at every point. So everything that we feel is also a part of what God feels. Just yeah. like what my toe feels is a part of what I feel. There is a coexistence going on there. And that really made a big difference to me because I grew up, um, they say in Indian culture, Indian fathers are like Indian gods, uh, physically mm. present, but emotionally absent. Oh, wow. You know, um, you know, you go to India, right? There's an idol on every street corner. Um, huh. And so they're physically present. Uh, but there is no, uh, you know, God is the one who gives you these uh, inscrutable duties that you must obey. And there, you know, there's a certain justice and a certain logic to it. Uh, but there's no empathy. Hmm. And, and that is very much the traditional Indian father. My father has certainly evolved far beyond that. But uh, there was definitely that uh, that sense of growing up that, and so the the really getting to the point 
uh, you know, I had another epiphany a few years later where, you know, I kind of grew up with a somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat Calvinistic viewpoint of, you know, God the Father is the judge and Jesus is the advocate arguing against the Father for him to show mercy to us. And I don't know if that's true Calvinism, but certainly people I've met who call themselves Calvinists have that viewpoint. Mm. Um, and realizing uh, that what uh, Christ the Son did on the cross, bearing our sins, um, is in some ways also, you know, Jesus said, I, I can only do what I see my Father doing. Hmm. And it, it, it struck me with the idea that like, oh, so God the Father is also bearing all of our sin and our pain and our, and our sin uh, for all eternity. And that God could stop hurting at any time just by wiping us all out. But he chooses to bear with us uh, mm. because he loves us, because he is accomplishing some greater thing that mm. we can barely imagine, much less understand. And it, it really just blew me away because I've always had this sense of God being separate and distinct. Uh, and the idea that God actually feels and knows my pain better than I do myself right. um, really shifted my relational interactions with God the Father. Hmm. That's interesting. I, you know, I, I kind of have this picture in my head more or less from Revelation, you know, the, mm -hmm. the God on the throne and like you say, sort of distinct. You still there? You still there? Hello? That was weird. Yep. Sorry. I, bu I bumped my phone and it's disconnected. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought, wow, hold music. <laughs> Uh, it's good. At least you have to hold music. But sometimes when someone drops off, I'll just keep talking for. Or I, I, usually when I drop off, I keep talking, so I don't even realize I'm monologue. Okay. So anyway, yes, you're talking uh, about uh, the picture of Revelation. Of, yeah. so does it actually show God the Father on the throne or Christ on the throne? Well, I think that's in Revelation. Uh, I'm not sure. I know, but in, in my head, I always, you know, sort of think of, you know, God as uh, somewhat distinct from us but it is a really interesting thought i mean I, I fully doctrinally have to accept that the holy spirit is in us and the holy spirit is part of the trinity so therefore like you say we're the panko crumbs <laughs> <laughs> no, no matter how i cut it that's how it shapes up yeah it's interesting. Yeah, someone, I read a really weird kind of thing, which I'm not sure if it was profound or just deranged, where this guy talks about how, you know, all of our concepts of gods are based on these sort of Greek myths of these guys standing up on, you know, mountaintop somewhere. And that if we were to be real about it, God is more like a field of energy, um, which, you know, I thought, like, that's kind of weird, but like, just because it's weird doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And right. Everything is a metaphor then maybe it's a less misleading metaphor than the ones we subconsciously use that we think of as brute facts. 
Yeah. No, I don't disagree. And I, 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 I hear questions or hear statements like that. And I go, you know, I think the answer is not A, B, C, or D, but all of the above. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, well, we see in a glass dimly. And yeah. the best we can hope for is that we can use new metaphors to help us uh, outgrow some of the distortions of the older metaphors. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, there's always the don't eat the menu. Just don't confuse the, the map, the model with reality. Mm. Uh, use it to help push you forward. But, you know, the ultimate reality is something that is transcendent of any of our definitions or metaphors or models. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's actually one definition of Godhead is the, in fact, the ultimate reality of which everything else is literally just imperfect shadows. Yeah. Um, but it's still better to have it's useful it's like because we have to function with the shadows. It's like, well, at least let's find better shadows uh, while still retaining some humility about them. So anyway, um, uh, from the abstract to the concrete, uh, you, you, you responded very graciously to my little blog post about unsolicited fatherly advice. And the one thing that you, uh, the, the phrase that I used, which was uh, uh, an odd one, was the conversational gambit. Yeah. And I can explain to you actually, I actually have a, so a situation coming up where uh, I can sort of illustrate what I mean by that. So um, I have a brother-in-law who um, is certainly not a Christian in the way the rest of the family is Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've never actually been sure of what it is that he actually believes or thinks, even though it's been a sort of tension um, in the past. And one of the uh, more interesting things is you remember Joanna from the, the DBJ session? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so she has this friend whom she describes as a prayer partner who's a Hindu. And oh, she wow. would just get together with her and pray with her. And it's like, this is why I love Joanna. She just like does these things. It's like, I don't know how to make sense out of this, but it's like, it's a thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. I'll just roll with it. Yeah. And she mentioned that this, this lady and her husband, um, you know, they're very much Hindus and they can't stand Christianity, but they don't have a problem with Jesus. Oh, wow. And Joanna said, it's like, I wish there was a way that I could talk to them about Jesus without, you know, having to get in all the baggage of Christianity, especially in a Hindu culture. Yeah. Right. Where it's seen as imperialistic and foreign and all this stuff. Uh And it occurred to me like, you know, huh, my brother-in-law is kind of in that same camp. He's often ragging on Christians and Christianity, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've never heard him say anything against Jesus. And in fact, he occasionally will say nice things about me. It's like, well, you know, you know, I think that that's stupid and foolish. And I bet Ernie thinks the same thing I do. <laughs> and, it, you know, and so he has some respect for at least how I interact with Jesus and truth. And so ah. um, I've been thinking about like, well, one, it would be fun just to get his input into building something DBJ style that Joanna could do with her friend. Because I know several people who are kind of in this boat where they're, they self-identify as Hindus to a greater or lesser extent. And they're somewhat allergic to Christianity. But yeah. they're not necessarily allergic to Jesus. It's like, wow, if I could do something that would help them, you know, encounter Jesus, you know, I have no particular desire to defend or evangelize Christianity. I just want to introduce people to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I thought, like, wow, that would be cool. Um, and also, like, you know, I am concerned about him, and the family is concerned about him where he is. Um, but uh, my wife said, like, you shouldn't preach to him. I was like, well, I don't want to preach to him. Actually, what I want is for him to preach to me, to help me understand right. what it is that he's doing. And so that's what I'm thinking is that, 
the conversational gambit is to say, okay, I want to talk about this thing that is really important to me and to answer these questions that I'm really, really concerned about. But a frontal assault of saying, you know, hey, here's what I think is going on with you and what I want to know is, is likely to build up defenses. Yep. And so in that sense, I say, okay, so let's do something which is real that I am concerned about where I make myself vulnerable and say, you know, hey, um, I've been wondering about this. And this would really help me. I was wondering, do you have anything to say about this? And uh, so that's what I meant by conversation is, is to either uh, lower the walls or introduce a topic uh, in a way where I am making myself vulnerable so that they can speak into that. Hmm. And there's a wonderful uh, story I heard, uh, which uh, my uh, therapist asked me, like, have you seen someone who really responds with grace in a difficult situation? And there was this podcast I heard about a black jazz musician who has accidentally gotten into this, uh, what I'm tempted to call the ministry of talking KKK members into leaving the Klan. And he did this totally by accident, is that he was raised overseas. So when he had 10 years old, when he was plopped down into the racist South, he was just confused. Like, why would people hate me when they don't even know me? Right. And so purely out of an intellectual quest to make sense of this bizarre phenomenon of racism, he said, well, I should write a book on the KKK and I should talk to actual members. And so he set up this meeting with a KKK uh, 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 clan leader, uh, hmm. and he like kind of tricked him to showing up in this hotel room uh, without knowing that he was black. And his secretary set it up, and this guy shows up with his bodyguard, and he's like, "Wait, what's going on here?" But he just stood up like hands up in the air and says, "Like, hey, I just want to talk. I just want to ask you some questions. You know, that's all." And so they start talking, and it's just really tense. You know, the bodyguard's got his little automatic on his hip, and they're kind of going through stuff, and all of a sudden they hear this sound and he's thinking oh no what just happened here and right. the clan guy staring at him like what just happened here and like there's this moment he goes like am i going to die <laughs> you know and suddenly the uh secretary bless her heart says oh you remember how i got you a bucket of ice for soda that was the ice melting and the soda cans shifting as everyone oh. burst out laughing <laughs> Huh. But this, but his strategy was, is that he would just ask them, why do you believe that? And then rather than like getting offended or angry or arguing with them, they say, huh, I don't understand. Could you explain more? And just by, because, you know, and then just by letting them vent and not fighting them back, they end up lowering their walls. And to me, that becomes, that's become kind of the, the thing that I aspire to yeah. is kind of very much we say is that when things happen where the natural response is to get defensive, it's like, my God, I'm a, a black man alone in a hotel room with two white supremacists, one of whom is carrying a gun. Yeah. It's like, if ever there was a time to be defensive, I would think it would be that. Right. But the fact that he didn't freak out, you know, uh, when you know the guy was verbally abusing him he didn't freak out when he thought his life was in danger was able to just sort of respond to the situation as it was 
and allow them to present their best side, uh, you know, that was transformational. Hmm. And that's the thing that I am uh, realizing, like, that is a grace I do not yet have that I need. And so I guess this is also a pre-announcement is that we're going to do a DB, uh, uh, I realize I want to do a DBJ session on this. I'm doing a one-off on Jan uh, June 19th, just a Saturday morning, huh. uh, about reconciling reformers. Because I realize I can have the most allergic reactions to people who are trying to fix the same problems I fixed, but I feel like they're doing it the wrong way. And I just <laughs> get really irritated at them. Uh, Hello? Lost you again. Hey, Ernie, I lost you. <laughs> Uh, the last thing.